Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm James Nurse, a paediatrician and the journal's social media editor. Every fortnight we release new episodes when I'm joined by authors to discuss new and sometimes not so new papers from the journal, allowing them to share insights into their work and explain their findings. There are now over 40 episodes highlighting more than 60 papers, so you can catch up on articles you may have missed whilst walking the dog or driving the car. But for now, keep listening for the latest episode on arginase deficiency. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, last year, we released the episode, Why Everyone Needs to Know About Urea Cycle Disorders, and it went on to become the second most listened to episode of all time. The emphasis there was on hyperammonemia as a complication of urea cycle disorders. However, not all UCDs are created equal, and arginase deficiency is a little different. So it's a pleasure to have a chance to revisit this topic and delve a little deeper, with an opportunity to not only look at a case series of affected patients, but also discuss a potentially promising treatment. To do this, it's a pleasure to be joined by Dr. Spiros Batsios of Great Ormond Street Hospital and Dr. George Diaz from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Uh, Spiros and George, welcome. Thank you for hearing us, James. Thank you very much, James. Now, evidently, urea cycle disorders aren't all equal. What is it that sets arginase deficiency apart from the others? I mean, I, I think that the most important thing is regarding the presentation. So like the rest of the urea cycle disorders, we're used to all those hyperammonemic crises, especially during the neonatal period, which is not something frequent in patients with arginine deficiency. And on the other hand, is this severe neurological impairment that those patients have with the pronounced spasticity that is basically one of the first symptoms in order to diagnose the patients. And I think that the fact as well that we speak about an ultra rare disorder, it makes as well arginase deficiency quite tricky to diagnose. We are used to diagnosing patients, for example, with OTC or citrullinemia. I think that arginase deficiency patients, they follow a different pathway than the rest of the urea cycle disorders. Yeah, I agree completely with that. I I would just add that in those uh, regions that are now employing newborn screening, arginase deficiency is becoming easy to pick up. Yeah, unfortunately, we lag somewhat behind on our newborn screening. But obviously, this is an international podcast. And we know that there's a lot of US states now that will be screening for this. Spiros, I think that your paper, the clinical status, biochemical profile and management of a single cohort of patients with arginase deficiency is a great way to highlight these differences in the real world. Um, What are you able to tell us about your cohort? This paper was recently published and it is basically the experience that we have in Great Ormond Street Hospital during the last 20 years. So we've reviewed our notes and we found since 1998 only six patients diagnosed with arginase deficiency. Those patients, they come from three unrelated families. The important thing that I think I need to mention about our cohort of patients is that the mean age at the first symptom was three and a half years. And actually the diagnosis was done in most of them five to six years ahead, uh, which shows exactly what we said before, that it's tricky to diagnose those patients. And sometimes we might lose the diagnosis. From a clinical point of view, we've reviewed all the symptoms that the patient had and described them in the paper. Um, So all of them, they had quite significant neurodisability, with spasticity being the most pronounced feature of the disease. All of them, they had severe learning difficulties, and uh, the vast majority had seizures as well. And apart from that, we've reviewed the patients from like a growth parameter point of view, a biochemical point of view, and a neuroimaging point of view as well. Uh, It was interesting to see because 
you don't find papers in literature about brain MRI findings in arginine deficiency patients, that they had all generalized cerebral and cerebellar atrophy with cortical gray matter injuries. And from a growth parameter point of view, it is as well quite important to note that even though our dietitians were doing an amazing job in order to make sure that they follow the diet and that they do not lack nutrients or calories or anything else, there was a gradual decline in regards to their weight and, and height. And of course, something which is known for all patients with arginine deficiency is that even though we try to treat them as good as possible with a protein-restricted diet, from a biochemical point of view, all of our patients continue to have throughout their life quite high arginine levels. All of them, they had constantly arginine levels, which were more than 200 micromole per liter, suggesting, of course, that the treatment that we have at the time being is not the best possible for the patients. You mentioned this quite long interval between presentation and diagnosis. I mean, to me, it seems very strange that children presenting with neurodisability weren't having you know, at least a set of amino acids done sooner. I imagine in this day and age, we'd be progressing to a panel or an exome or even a genome much sooner. I agree with you. It is just the fact that we speak about patients that some of them were diagnosed almost 20 years ago. So possibly the practice back then was a little bit different. I truly hope that the neurologists in the UK and everywhere in the world, when they see a child with a presumed diagnosis of cerebral palsy or something, they at least do a plasma amino acid sample in order to just find high arginine levels. But this was probably not the case 20 years ago. You talked a little about treatment there with protein-restricted diets. I mean, I know we're going to speak to George about something entirely different with treatment, but how were these patients being treated? Was it just the protein restriction or do they get nitrogen scavengers? And Yeah, all of our patients were managed with protein-restricted diet and were supplemented with uh, arginine-free amino acids. I mean, the goal was always to reduce plasma arginine levels below 200, but we were basically never successful in that. And the total protein intake that the patients were receiving was something like, you know, natural protein and essential amino acids in a ratio of 40 to 50 to 50 to 60 uh, percent. All of them, they received ammonia scavengers. In GOS in general, we always start with sodium benzoate. Some of the patients actually, they required a combination of sodium benzoate and sodium phenylbutyrate. And of course, apart from like this traditional kind of approach that we have for all patients with arginase deficiency, the patients received as well symptomatic treatment. So they've received, for example, anticonvulsant medication. Some of them that have a really, really significant spasticity, they require tendon Achilles release surgeries and, and things like that. And, and Spiros, within the paper, when you're looking at your patients, I noticed you talked about something called gate right. Is it? What, what's that? Um, so gate right basically is an electronic carpeted walkaway mat that we use in GOS. And this mat has embedded pressure activated mechanical sensors. Basically, our physiotherapists use that. And what we do is that we put patients to walk barefoot at the preferred speed in four consecutive passes. And then we assess different kinds of parameter related to gait, such as velocity, cadence, step length, and base of support. And we compare those data with normative data, which are standardized for sex and age. So we've done that for our cooperative patients. And we've actually seen that our patients had gait abnormalities all the time. And for that reason, we propose the use of gait ride as a possible means of following up and assessing the spasticity of those children. 
Oh, it sounds very interesting. You guys at Gosh get all the best toys, don't you? So it seems this is a condition that, in spite of our best efforts, continues to cause a significant amount of neurodisability and acute decompensations. Suppose you wrap up your paper by saying that better treatments are needed, and this feels like a perfect opportunity to segue into our other paper, the clinical effects and safety profile of, oh God, pegzilarginase. Um, is that right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> pegzilarginase in patients with arginase 1 deficiency, which I know you also contributed to. George, what is pegzilarginase and are they going to rename it when it comes to market? The naming conventions are always interesting. So pegzilarginase is a human recombinant arginase with a substitution of the metal ion that makes it uh, quite stable. So it persists uh, for a long period of time. It's pegylated and so it will not be as immunogenic, one hopes. And so it was given by IV infusion or injection to this cohort uh, and has very uh, significant uh, arginine degradation properties in, in vivo and in vitro. Prior to the study, you'd established that it has Im impressive potential. How did you test it in human subjects then? So the study engaged in a two-part dose escalation where patients were challenged with single ascending doses according to a protocol prescribed uh, regimen uh, until they hit a stopping point where the arginine levels were below therapeutic range, kind of below normal range. Uh, and so then a, a dose was established for a given patient, at which point they were administered repeated dosing of that amount of drug. And then they were enrolled into an open label extension study that is still ongoing. And does it work? So if you look at the biochemical parameters, um, so our gene levels are completely normal as it's quite shocking. Uh, these patients have been on dietary therapy, kind of maximal therapy, and the levels are, uh, are difficult to keep below 300, 400 in the population in general. Um, you know, 200 is kind of the therapeutic target. And these patients are now in the normal range on a consistent basis. So um, arginine as a biomarker looks perfect. The guanidino compounds that are downstream metabolites also um, show significant reductions. And so from that perspective, there's good efficacy. The thing that was really most surprising to me is some of the spasticity uh, and kind of the neurologic effects that set this disorder apart from other urea disorders seem to be reversible. And so that is something that's been described in the literature. Some early work by Steve Cederbaum kind of demonstrated that if you give a baby replacement blood transfusions back in the day, um, the spasticity improved and then kind of recurred. And so in these patients, we were seeing a similar pattern. Obviously, it's not completely reversible, but to a significant extent. And that was demonstrated with some of the gross motor function assays, um, the six-minute walk test and so on. So there, there were definitely signs in this small population of improvement. That's obviously an attractive outcome given that most of the patients who are going to need this are already going to have complications of the disease. Absolutely. I mean, I was really quite surprised. Um, you know, my assessment was, okay, we'll stabilize patients and, and that's a good thing. Um, but to actually see the uh, the neurocognitive uh, improvements was was surprising and super and really welcome. I mean, one of the things that we didn't really capture well here is the effect on cognition. The patients really became much more interactive. You know, the parents noted it, the, the schools, everybody really picked up on the fact that um, these children just became different, kind of like that, that fog that hyperaminemia can cause. It was really improved and, again, an unexpected finding. It all sounds quite exciting. This was a study that appeared in print in the middle of last year, July 2021, but the, obviously the road to publication is a rocky one. The actual paper was submitted right at the start of uh, 2020, what feels like a different world now, I suppose. Yeah. Um, has, has there been any progress since then? 
Yeah. So, I mean, part of the issue with the publication was a lot of back and forth about the significance of these minimal clinical improvements, and it took some time to kind of get that through. Um, subsequently, the drug has now been tested in a phase three placebo-controlled double-blind study, so kind of gold standard, and those top-line data actually were just released in December, and they recapitulate the biochemical findings, the arginine levels, the quantum acid levels. Uh, normalized down, and the functional data are trending in the same way. It was a 26-week study, the double-blind period, and then open-label rollover for all of the participants. So the 26-week data still are trending in a positive direction. So I think that that is very encouraging. So it seems like the next time we see a cohort of these patients reported, we might see a very different set of outcomes. Yeah, it would, it would be uh, nice to, to speculate that that will be what we see, we, we hope. Struggling to draw you out on anything definite there. Well, fair <laughs> enough. If you'd like to read either of these papers, you can go to the links in the podcast description or you go to our general website and search for uh, Pegzil Arginase or Arginase 1 deficiency and uh, enzyme replacement therapy. And you can go to the JMD reports page um, to read Spiros's paper on that cohort of patients with Arginase deficiency. George and Spiros, thank you both for joining me. I'm very grateful for your time. Yeah, thanks for uh, the invitation. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, James. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.